0: Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.
1: Our guest today is Mike Lanford. He is the founder and CEO of FinServe Marketing. Um, he's also been an entrepreneur uh, with uh, Big Break Media and um, worked for a while at a company called SocialWare. Uh, but prior to that, he cut his teeth in the financial services industry um, as a senior analyst at Fidelity for five years, well, almost six years, as a finance officer at State Street Corporation, and as a financial analyst. Uh, at the Pioneer Group, and um, I am pleased to have him with me today on this podcast. Mike, welcome.
2: Um, Thank you very much for having me, Eric. I appreciate it.
1: So I want to uh, talk to you today about uh, social media compliance, and I want to focus specifically on FINRA and the FINRA guidance. So just to set the stage here for those people who may not be in financial services but who are listeners of the podcast, sure. tell us what is FINRA and what is its relationship to other regulatory bodies like the SEC?
2: Sure, sure. So FINRA is, is a regulatory body, as you mentioned, but it, it's different than the SEC. So the SEC is a government body, a government agency uh, that has regulatory oversight over the securities Industry. Anybody who's marketing and selling securities or transacting in securities, uh, FINRA is a little different. FINRA is a self-regulatory body that manages broker-dealers and their registered representatives. So a broker-dealer, uh, at Morgan Stanley is a wirehouse broker-dealer. There's some other broker-dealers that are independent broker-dealers, as an example. Um, and those broker-dealers have registered representatives who are licensed individuals who are allowed to go out and solicit and sell stock funds, neutral funds, and the like, right? So the financial products that you, you see out there. Uh, the, the real big difference is the SEC manages uh, the, the overall sales of securities, the advertisement of securities, right? Uh, the SEC also uh, uh, oversees uh, registered investment advisors that are above $100 million in assets under management, Financial advisor, A registered investment advisor who has under $100 million in assets under management uh, now has, are, are state regulated. So each individual state out there has a regulatory body that oversees securities as well. Uh, and so what happens if you're a financial advisor in a state, if you're a registered investment advisor uh, in a state, it depends on how big your business is, um, whether you'll be regulated by the state or by the SEC as your primary regulator. It doesn't mean that you get to not pay attention to the state's rules if you're in the state, and you only have to pay attention to the SEC. It just means the SEC is going to be the ones who are looking at you, and if they have to come in and do an examination of your practice, to look, make sure that you're doing everything on the up and up, um, that the SEC would do that, not the state.
1: Now, much of the FINRA social media guidance references the rules from the National Association of Securities Dealers yeah. So uh, talk to us about the National Association of Securities Dealers and what's its relationship to FINRA.
2: So NASD is actually kind of the precursor to FINRA. It was the, the old name for FINRA, effectively. So a lot of the rules that were laid out uh, during the NASD uh, era have carried over uh, to FINRA. Uh, and so many of the rules you see referenced uh, as it relates to social media really look at uh, two, two general let's call it two general rules, like the brackets of rules. One is the uh, is uh, how to market securities, right? So there's some advertising rules, what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say, right? Does that make sense? So, uh, so it, you can't claim that this is a guaranteed investment as an example, unless it is a guaranteed investment. You have to have the ability to back that up, right? So your advertising must be truthful. And you must be able to, again, back it up. So there's a whole bunch of like, silly things, like for instance, uh, financial advisory firm can't be named. You know, best ever financial advisor. <laughs> Something like that, right? Because uh, there's no way of, of uh, defining is that true or not. Uh, when you're advertising, you're not allowed to use testimonials, or you should not use testimonials in your advertising, because uh, there's no way of saying. If, if I said, hey, uh, Mike Langford says he's, this guy is the best financial advisor ever to work with. You should definitely work with Eric Schwartzman as your advisor. Well. That's suitable for me, maybe, because I like working with Eric, but that has no bearing on somebody else's business, right? So there's some rules that govern uh, advertising and what you say to the end consumer. And all these rules are meant to protect the consumer.
1: The other... Okay. What, about, what about a claim that couldn't be proof, proven false either? Yeah. Like, for so example, I, could, I, could you say you're the number one...
2: Probably not. I think FINRA would, would, would say, hey, listen, you, just because I can't prove it's not true, the fact that you can't prove that it is true uh, and that it may be misleading to a consumer and cause them to make a decision that is not based on their best interests, right, uh, that they would, they would shy away from that. And most compliance departments would be uh, more conservative than that if uh, you <laughs> try to pull that off. Uh, they may, you may say something like largest or something like that, most assets under management, and usually they don't do most. They'll just say, hey, listen, this is how much we have under management, as an example. Uh, or they may even mention how many clients they have uh, in, a, in a marketing piece. But as a general rule, they stay away from declaring themselves as superior in any other
1: way. But, but many of these firms are um, comprised of individual representatives in different states who are trying to develop a target market for themselves. So I would imagine that they may at times make claims to try to grow their individual book of business. And then I guess at times the firm has to sort of get involved and uh, decide whether or not those claims are compliant. Absolutely, 100%. So the process from from a uh,
2: logistical process, if you will, is each registered representative has to get permission or basically pass all of their advertising and all of their digital communications and their written communication is subject to the supervision and approval of compliance. And it depending on the type, whether it has to be pre-approved or or it's subject to review uh, after the fact, right, ad hoc, excuse me, but... There, there's some general rules, so we're getting to the general rule of, of compliance, right, for digital marketing or for any type of communication based on the, the, on, the, on the regulatory rules. One is um, written communication, whether it's digital or in print, must be recorded like, and available for record-keeping, and it has to be easily discoverable, meaning you have to basically archive things. So if I send you an email, that email needs to be archived. And it needs to be easily discoverable by compliance or should the regulator come in and want to do an audit to make sure that everything's on the up and up or there's ever dispute. A client or a prospect says, hey, this guy was trying to defraud me as an example. It has to be easy to find, based on record-keeping technology, right, where is this, this piece of communication that is in, in question here? So let's go look at the records of it. And so that applies to written and it re- applies to anything that went off digitally. Uh, where companies get in trouble... Um, and it wasn't too long ago. I think it was Barclays uh, got fi- a relatively sizable fine because some of their archiving um, was not stored in a way where it couldn't potentially be overwritten. So there's an old phrase called "worm." You know, like a, a write once, read. Uh, so what is it called? What is "worm" then Worm compliant basically means you can't write over it. Right? It basically you can write it once, but it can you can read many times, but it can't be written over. Um, and so that type of thing is, is looked at by regulators very strongly when they come in for an audit. So that's, the number one thing is we have to archive it, store it, so that we review later. The secondary thing is it needs to be supervisable. So you're an independent registered rep. You're out there in the field. You're sending your communication out to the world. a supervisor, so whether it's the principal of the firm or somebody that's in compliance, needs to be able to look at it from time to time. And so very often it's done through the archival process. So what they do in the archival process, as an example, is it, it doesn't just go into archives, but it's also kind of CC's compliance, if you will, goes into a compliance queue that can review it. So email, as an example, in, in financial firms, emails, they usually have some uh, flags in there that look for specific words, keyword searches, basically on emails that say, if, if an advisor mentions guarantee or mentions a specific security name or something like that, that email will automatically go into a queue and compliance will take a quick look at it to make sure that they weren't guaranteeing a specific return when they can't do that or something like that. Um, but as a general rule, what they'll do is they'll do random sampling. Right? So X percent of all advisory emails will get a quick look at by the compliance team. Now, the same thing is being applied to social media. right? Social media is both in potentially advertisement and communication. So it really kind of falls into the same type of general ruling uh, and oversight that you would expect. So, you know, there are certain advertising rules of what they can and cannot say, and you have to adhere to those types of things. You don't want to be caught, caught pumping a stock that you have a position in, as an example, saying that you should buy Apple, it's the best thing in the world, uh, when you have a big position in Apple, right? You don't want to be doing that. The other things you want to make sure you're doing is, uh, not trying to defraud investors. And very often when you see a case that says uh, so-and-so committed social media fraud, like well, it wasn't social media fraud. They were actually trying to commit securities fraud, but they used social media as their mechanism. They, they might have used the phone or in-person communication as well uh, to try to commit said fraud. They just happened to get caught using Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever. Uh, so that's one thing is they have to make sure that everything is on the up and up from an advertising perspective. And in the same way that email needs to be archived, needs to be compliance reviewed, uh, or reviewable, supervisable, uh, that also applies. Uh, really interesting is finding out some firms have taken a very conservative approach. So Morgan Stanley, as an example, is one of the early pioneers using social media, lighting up all their 16,000-plus financial advisors. And actually today, an article just came out mentioning that they are uh, loosening the reins a little bit and allowing financial advisors to send their own original tweets. Whereas before, advisors at Morgan Stanley could tweet with their, with their registered Morgan Stanley uh, Twitter account. However, they had to... Ha- all the tweets were basically canned tweets from a, a tweet library. They couldn't correct, craft their own post. So as a result, a negative of that was many advisors weren't using Twitter aggressively because it it's, that's kind of not how Twitter works, right? Uh, but it gave Morgan Stanley's compliance team the Mormon fuzzy that no shenanigans had happened. Nothing bad would get out into the marketplace. Uh, but now they're starting to allow advisors to tweet originally. Uh, the, the tweet still has to go through pre-review. Almost as it is it is an advertising. So it goes into its compliance queue After a couple of hours, it's released into the the wide world as as a tweet. So, better than it was before, but still not as good as you would like it to be, right?
1: So, let's drill down on the record-keeping requirements. So, as it says, you have to keep records of all communications that are related to the business of the firm. But what if that communication is made from a personal mobile device? Yeah. and what if it's made to a personal account that's used also for personal use but sometimes for business? Right, right. Would there and need so, to be a record of that? And if so, how would you satisfy that requirement?
2: So a very g- great
1: question. And so
2: FinRub was very clear, and let's say this might be uh, two years ago in their, their updated ruling, uh, what, in that device doesn't matter, right? They, they, there's an acknowledgement that there's a bring your own device, to the workplace uh, atmosphere at foot now, right? That many advisors are using an iPhone and, and not using a BlackBerry issued by the firm and so forth. So they were very specifically to say, hey, listen, it doesn't matter if you use your home computer or your personal smartphone or whatever to disseminate any type of communication because that could be hooked up to your work account. To your point, it could also be on a personal account. It really doesn't matter. If you were doing business communications with that, it is subject to the rules uh, re- regarding archival and supervision. So pretty cut and dry here, pretty easy. It does get a little challenging, right, for the advisor from a, from a um, structural and, and, and process perspective of how do I handle this if uh, I'm using my personal account to interact with somebody. At that point in time, it is truly up to that individual, that registered representative, because they are a registered licensed professional. They should have their own Process in place to make sure that that tweet or that that Facebook update or that LinkedIn update, uh, well LinkedIn is usually connected to their to their uh, account, but that make sure that that gets into the compliance process for record keeping and for it. Right? So, so as, as an example, a registered investment advisor, either regulated by SEC or a state level, they're re- they're required to keep their own records, right? Um, That individual registered rep who would be FINRA regulated, same thing. If if they came in and do an archive and the client said, hey, he was communicating with me via his Gmail address, FINRA would expect to have you open up Gmail and show them the communication between
1: you and that client. Um... If, if you could find it, I mean, finding find anything it. in Gmail, I mean, right. because it was a Google product, you could find anything. Right, exactly. But I mean, now it's difficult, and you think about something like Twitter, where you really only have access to the last 90 days. How would uh, an, a registered representative satisfy those audit trails sure. with a personal Twitter account that was used for both business and personal?
2: So there's a couple of different ways. There's been a whole crop of new technologies that are coming about that are making this easy, right? So kind of taking the technology, like how do I archive, how do I make sure it's discoverable for um, my, my, my compliance team, they've taken that equation out of the advisor's hands. But, so there's a whole bunch of them, Hearsay Social, uh the uh, new one called uh, Advisor Deck that's coming out, actually, no, it's called Gainfully. The, the Advisor Deck was their original, in Gainfully, uh, HootSuite even has a solution for a, a, a company called Socialware, which I was the head of social strategy for there for a while. Uh, they all offer a really easy mechanism for you to provision your social media account, whether it's a personal account or a business account, and to have all the activity in that account archived and, and discoverable. What gets a little queasy feeling for the advisor, Must say, is if the advisor was using his personal Twitter account, there's no way for that tool to disseminate whether you're using personal, whether it's personal communication or business communication. So everything is archived, right? So the general kind of advice, if you will, rule of thumb is, listen, if you're going to be putting conversations that you're uncomfortable with, like you wouldn't use your work email to kind of do your romantic talk with your wife, as an example. You wouldn't use your your, uh, whatever, your, your work email to do that. You'd use your personal email if that's what you do. Uh, or to talk about, you know, the party you're having with your buddies. Uh, so it's really up to the professional to kind of create a good line of, hey, I don't use this account for that type of activity. I use this other account for that type of activity. Uh, but as a general rule, the tools are there. They're very effective. Uh, there's a company called Global Relay, which is kind of an 800-pound gorilla in the archival. Uh, States for digital marketing for the financial services industry. So a lot of these hearsay socials and 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 so forth plug into a global relay to do all of the archival uh, process. Um, global Relay also did email archiving, and that's kind of where they got their start. Um, so you're seeing that, that from a technology perspective, it's really easy to do. Uh, it really comes from a process. Its next kind of piece of it is the process to see, you know, is, are you doing it the way you're supposed to do?
1: And then what about the um, record-keeping requirements for static versus interactive communications? Sure. So there's a whole lot
2: of um, back and forth on that. So static, the way of thinking about what static is, static is your website. You put out your website, and there's an About page there. Um, You put on your profile stuff on LinkedIn. That's considered to be static content. It's considered almost like a brochure, right? You may update it from time to time, but as a general rule, it's going to be somewhat evergreen, long-lasting content, so That's considered static. And almost every financial firm out there will say that should be pre-reviewed ahead of time. Like, that's considered advertising. No way around it, right, that there's no reason why if you're updating your website or you're updating your, your profile on LinkedIn or some other social network that that can't go through compliance be pre-reviewed before being put up there. There's no hurry, if you will. So every firm kind of handles that the same way. The interactive content is what you and I would think of as conversational in nature. So you're out there, you see a tweet, you click the reply button to a tweet. You comment on a post you see on Facebook or something you see on LinkedIn. That's really interactive in nature. And, and, and sometimes even the initial tweet, there can be a question of whether it's interactive or it's it's static content. As a general rule, people are going more and more to uh, it's interactive. But there are some firms who look at the initial post is static, right? You crafted something, you put it out there, you took the time to initiate it. It wasn't conversational in nature. You just meant it to be almost as an advertisement. So that should be pre-reviewed. But after that, comments don't have to be anything that's a reply does not have to be uh, pre-reviewed. And sometimes, so that's handled case-by-case. Case. Uh, what's really interesting, though, is when content can go from being interactive and become static, and that is content that's not produced by the advisor or the, the, the financial professional. Uh, so as an example, you have a blog on your site. You post content to it. You post a, make a blog post, and somebody comes in and comments on it. You are actually responsible for that individual's content to make sure that it really doesn't violate security rules. Now, there's, as a general rule, like you're not responsible for somebody else's content uh, uh, if that content is just, you know, just doesn't meet with your general standards or whatever. Uh, you're not responsible for that content if it's on another uh, website that you don't control, right? But if it's on a site that you can control, like your blog. Once that blog, that comment sits there long enough and you haven't moderated it off, Fitter could say, hey listen, that's, that's your content. You, you, you approved it, you let the comment sit there. Any consumer who comes to your website, reads this blog post and sees this con- comment might be influenced by that piece of content. So you have, if you know that that's something that's attempting to defraud the consumer or mislead the consumer, you have the responsibility to take that down off your website. Uh, So that's an example where something could go from being conversational in nature. A comment is generally considered a a conversational uh, piece of content uh, that could transform into static content that should be handled in a certain way. Uh, That's also true on your LinkedIn page uh, or on your Facebook page. If somebody comments on your Facebook page, you have the ability to delete that comment or mark it as spam or whatever. Uh, so you do have to monitor your com- any type of community which you have control over to make sure that it meets with your compliance uh, standards.
1: Now, it also says in the FINRA guidance that you can't use any network that auto-erases content. Right. So I guess Snapchat is off-limits? Yeah.
2: yeah, any of these ephemeral... Uh, things, you know, a, the Snapchats of the world that are automatically wiping things out after the fact like, as to purposely erase an audit trail. Right? That gets back to that original thing where I mentioned like, the whole like worm standard uh, where uh, it, it has to be, uh, once it's written, it needs to stay there kind of forever, <laughs> right? Uh, what's really interesting, though, is so uh, many social networks allow you to edit your posts. Right? And so that created a challenge. And so when Facebook, uh, and LinkedIn started a lot, and, and Google Plus as an example, uh, allow you to go back in if you've posted something and go, you know what, oh, typo. And that's what most people use it for, They go back and correct the typo or they miss the piece of information that they wanted to include in it, so they go back and do that. Uh, that, the edited, the original and the edited version also needs to be, uh, kept for record keeping purposes, right? Uh, so, uh, that can get quite complex, as you might imagine, for uh, the compliance team and the regulators to reconstruct the conversation if all of a sudden it's it treated as a new thread or what have you. Um, so it, it's interesting. Actions has a brand-new tool that they, they've created with IBM uh, that does a really good job of that, of, of reconstructing the conversation so that it looks at just as it would on the social network because many of these compliance reviews are being done... Uh, after the fact, and they're being done and they're not actually going going to Facebook to review it, they're looking at a a compliance tool uh, that pops stuff up on the screen that says, hey, this message was posted to Facebook at this point in time, this message was posted at this point in time, and so forth. It doesn't look like it does on Facebook. So uh, one of the next waves of compliance software is to let's make sure it looks the way that it looked before so we can get the full context of the situation.
1: So it's like a version control?
2: Yeah, exactly, edit. And edit, the edit will be seen alongside the original post, uh, any new comments that come in and so forth, and it'll, be, it'll thread it just in the way that it would be threaded. So, in the event, every time the advisor, as an example, adds a comment to a thread, it'll pop it back up, not as just the one comment, with a Twitter in the early days, when you had to click the In Reply To button, In Reply To button, to see like who was replying to what, and you'd be brought to a new web page every single darn time. <laughs> right? Well, now it is, it's really simple. It's you know, look at this, in it's a full thread, just like it would see, you see on Twitter or, or on Facebook.
1: Now, a 2012 survey by Mass uh, Securities Division of the Office of the Secretary for the Commonwealth indicated that 44% of investment advisors use some form of social media. That was a while ago, so the number probably up. Yeah. Uh, the survey also indicated that LinkedIn is the most frequent social media network used. As often, is that consistent with your experience?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. It seems natural, too, right? And so I think it's for two reasons. I think, number one, it's really easy to see the business use case for LinkedIn because it is a business professional social network. So it's really easy for an advisor, a financial professional who's approaching this to go, I get it. It's also really easy to see the value in it. Right? So if I go to, uh, if I go to LinkedIn, I see things like job changes, uh, and other money in motion events, right? A job change is a money in motion event. Somebody's leaving one job and going to another job. There's likely a 401k rollover available, uh, for, for the individual, for the, uh, the advisor to take advantage of. So, that's one of the reasons why you see LinkedIn so prevalently used. Uh, they're also able to look at some transparency into the network. Right. Show me other people who look like this individual. Uh, I can get referrals and so forth so it's very commonly used It's also the one that frankly I felt most I felt most comfortable with uh they they were they, they, they were they looked at LinkedIn and said, this makes sense. this is business communication it's meant for business communication so any activity we see on here by a financial professional we know to be uh business communication so very similarly to the question we just had a few minutes ago about how do we monitor personal versus professional communication? Well, frankly, everything that's happening on LinkedIn should be professional communication. There really shouldn't be uh, much of a difference, right?
1: Yeah, I guess the challenge is, you know, if it's all business all the time, it's kind of boring. It doesn't have a lot of um, interactivity. So, I mean, even though there is a newsfeed, and even though there are groups, you know, you certainly don't get you know the level of interactive communications on LinkedIn as you get on a channel like Twitter. Right. Yeah. Uh,
2: it, it, it's funny, and that's one of the things that has been uh, an educational process, I would say, both for the financial firm and for the individuals, that the first instinct is to. Publish things that are only professionally related, right? Uh, Let's tell everybody about our uh, exciting new uh, economic outlook for the next coming quarter. Uh, And as if consumers really, you know, the average consumer cares about that, right? (laughs) And so what happens is, uh, to your point, if it's all professional, all business, all the time, Uh, very often you're missing the point because the consumer doesn't necessarily care about your economic outlook. They care about the things that are important to them. And I would also say it misses the point in that you're not spending your time focusing on what the consumer is truly interested in, which may be sports. It may be family type of stuff. It may be uh, American Idol or any of those types of things. So culturally uh, interesting things with the consumer. There's a whole reason why they hire a financial professional, right? is so they can enjoy life. And so what you want to make sure you're doing is you're resonating with the consumer on some level. And, and one of the things that we advise on when we work with financial firms and talk to the, the advisors is, hey, listen, I know you're excited about what you're going to share. And, and that's something that is really top of mind and, and in your mind, very important and causing some anxiety. Like what do I publish? But believe it or not, a lot of the value you're going to get out of the social network is listening to your consumer. I mean, social networks are some of the greatest consumer research tools ever created. When you go to somebody's Facebook page, as an example, and look at it, you can see the, the movies they like, the, the pages that, you know, the brands that they're interested in. You can see that what's going on in their family life, what's going on in their professional life. And you can have a really good picture of who that individual is. And so you can now customize for communication with that individual to tailor- be tailor made, uh, so you're assured that it'll be interesting to them. So you know that individual, and that to me is one of the value props that is often missed when somebody you know these big firms come in and they're kind of compliant scared you know, uh, about their approach to social.
1: Let's talk about Finra's so-called suitability mandate. Um, you know, as I understand it, an investment advisor has to have a reasonable basis to believe that a recommended transaction or investment strategy involving a security or securities is suitable for a customer. So, I mean, how how do you implement standards with investment advisors who are dealing with investors or potential investors to make sure that they satisfy the so-called suitability mandate?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, got a little bit of clarity on suitability and mandate. So, the two general uh, uh, two general uh, to live up to. For registered registered representatives, there's a suitability standard, as you mentioned. There's investors those who are um, operating under senior state registration. Uh, a registered investor has a fiduciary duty to feeding those two. So, suitability standard is basically says, "Hey, listen, look at the individual in which you are trying to sell to, and make sure you're not." kind of trying to sell them something that wouldn't be reasonable. So it's kind of a reasonableness to it. So the easiest example that is very common uh, commonly cited is if you meet an 80-year-old woman living on a very low fixed income, uh, don't try to sell her a of the money call options on uh, risky, uh, right? It's just probably a very volatile stock. That's not suitable. Like, no rational person says, hey, listen, basically, let's sell this lady every ticket here. Uh, that, yeah, she probably won't with this, right? There's more likely she doesn't fully understand associated with this investment. So, by the way, she can't absorb the risks. You know that. Like, look at if she loses this $2,000, like, she's broke, right? She doesn't eat for a month. So, uh, suitable for that type of an individual. So that's really the the general rule. Uh, registered representatives and broker dealers that follow under FINRA reg- regulation, the suitability standard is there because they do not have, have uh, the duty to abstain from conflict of interest. They're selling stocks and they're buying stocks. So they're te- they're telling one client, hey, you should buy this, and then the very next client is, hey, you should sell this. That's what they do. They are they are stock brokers. They The registered reps, many of them who are now called financial advisors, effectively were stockbrokers, right? That's what they used to be called. And so their job is to sell stuff. Now, many of them have gone to what's called a fee-based model in which, you know, they do work with a client as an advisor, uh, and they earn a fee for managing their assets. But as a general rule, they're still in the business of moving volume, right? They they have to avoid churning, which is kind of against the rules to try to incentivize buying just for the sake of buying and creating commissions, but they're still in the business of selling stuff. That's what their firms do. Registered investment advisors have what's called a fiduciary standard. And a fiduciary standard is you must abstain from conflict of interest. You have to do what is best for the client. So you to put the client's needs first. So it's, it's kind of like suitability standard plus, right? So you can't be telling the client, hey, you should buy this security. It's going to be good for you. And at the same time, you be selling it or you be telling the other people to sit out, right? This is best for you. That conflict of interest. So MERS stand for working with a client. It doesn't mean that registered representatives uh, and, and federal regulated firms that are held to uh, the, the, the suitability standards. It doesn't mean they're offering bad services. It just means it's a different standard. It's when you as an example, when you look at, you know, a brokerage application, we fill out a brokerage application, it'll tell you right in it that like, hey, listen, we may have conflict of interest. Like we may we're selling stuff. That's what we do, that's how we earn stuff, earn our money.
1: Right, right. And so of the broker dealers, of the firms that are out there, you know, who's got the best written standards for online communication comply with, with the suitability mandate?
2: I don't know if there's anybody who's, who's, I would say, is the best in the suitability mandate. I think they've all got it covered uh, in terms of, you know, the basis. I mean, that mandate's been around for a very long time, right? Um, so you'll occasionally hear somebody get caught up in that. Not that frequently. I think most advisors, most uh, broker-dealers are, have, have kind of nailed that. So I don't know if there's anybody that I can think of off the top of my head that would would elevate them above and beyond their peers on doing that, um, there's definitely some firms as far as using social media and, and their, their overall uh, approach to it that I think are, are getting out ahead of the pack, uh, and you're seeing them in the news. And like I, said, I mentioned earlier, Morgan Stanley in terms of uh, their peers in the um, in the wirehouse uh, realm. They are a little ahead of some of their, their peers, just because they've, they've been at it longer. They were the first ones to say, "Yes, we're going to enable fi- our financial advisory population to use social media." So they're a little further down the road, uh, but very quickly you're seeing other firms follow suit, uh, and some of them are a lot more um, uh, what you would call it, I would call it free flowing, but a lot more uh, less risk-adverse and less uh, kind of hands-on in, in, in the advisors' use of social media. They're, they're still doing what they're supposed to do from a regulatory perspective, uh, but they're they're not uh, locking things down like they used to. Uh, the most advanced, believe it or not, which is, is the way you, you, you think it would be the opposite, the most advanced use of social that I've seen is in the RIA space, the registered investment advisors, those that are SEC-registered and state-registered and have the fiduciary standards, um, Many of those advisors are much further along in their, their use of digital marketing and their use of uh, social media more, more specifically. Uh, and one just can see that mainly because many of those firms are smaller uh, and they, they just, they're a little more free-flowing and because of the way that they're regulated and the rules of their, the road for them is, is much lighter.
1: Now, FINRA also sets out some pretty strict standards for public appearances. Uh, prohibiting false or misleading statements and uh, you know uh, imposing a duty to act in good faith and to deal fairly with the public and um, public appearances can include communications online so what is your approach to regulating those types of communications
2: so so as a general rule if you 're going to speak so you, you make a really good point. So that and that's been mentioned in, in there talking about social media. That hey, listen, you know some of the same stuff that you've done in the past when you've gone to speak in front of a you know your local Rotary Club or, or you're having one of those lunch and learns, right? Where you're going to have a bunch of people in, you're going to give buy them free lunch and you're going to present to them about something financially related in hope that you'll win a couple of new clients. That's just a very common practice in the industry. Um, so uh, they say, hey, listen, some of that applies to social. If you're out there on social and you're putting a video or you're writing a blog or whatever, that's kind of like a public appearance. So the general approach to that is get a review. Like If you're going to do a presentation, the general gist of your presentation to any type of public group, swing it through compliance first. Right? If it's something you're planning out and you're spending some time going, this is going to be my strategy, this is going to be my message that I share with the world, it doesn't hurt to pass it by compliance. Now, many advisors will, are uncomfortable are thinking compliance is going to say no or it's going to take some time or whatever. But the real deal is compliance is there at your firm not to say no, really. They're there to protect, first and foremost, protect the consumer. Right? That's really the regulatory compliance stuff is there to protect the end consumer. Your compliance person is there to protect the firm first and foremost to make sure that there's no liability that can arise, uh, but also to protect you. As a, as a financial advisor, that you don't want to be the one because you know what happens. If the, firm, if the firm's getting fined, then you did right? Down. Your career might be over if you're the one who's trying to defraud investors and so forth like that. So they want to make sure that you're not trying to out there trying to be shady or mislead investors. So anything you're constructing, whether it's the presentation deck, uh, whether it's a big blog post, make sure you run it through compliant firms generally takes a day or two for them to take a quick look at it. They may have some edits, some suggestions, roll with it, and go.
1: We're talking to Mike Langford. He is the founder and CEO of FinServe Marketing. And when we return, we're going to talk about third-party posts, training
0: requirements, and registered principal approval. Stay with us. Up to now, most organizations have managed social media risk with a policy. Today, 80% eighty percent of employers have a social media policy in place eighty percent that means almost every organization has a social media policy that its employees are expected to follow the problem is no one reads them they sign for them and stick them in the bottom drawer in fact only two out of every thousand people read standard form contracts before signing them that means Your social media policy won't change anyone's behavior because no one reads it. At the same time, social media usage at work has become mainstream. Most employees use social media at work every day. Not just PR and marketing people, but everyone. Most employees use social media several times over the course of their workday. If they say or share something they shouldn't, and it's only a matter of time until somebody at your company says or shares something they shouldn't, your organization's reputation can be severely damaged. Now, if you're listening to this, you know social media meltdowns have become their own newsbeat. Every week, a new company is tarred and feathered for social media misuse. If you're in marketing or PR, you should know that at many organizations, social media misuse results in the reduction of digital marketing budgets and staff. So even if your department is knowledgeable on what is and isn't okay to do on social media, it's in your best interest to make sure others inside your company don't make foolish mistakes that impact your livelihood. Because if someone does or says something that gets your company in trouble online, your social media marketing activities are gonna be scrutinized and possibly even eliminated. But there is something you can do to protect your company and yourself you can make sure your people are trained in social media compliance. Don't be fooled, social media compliance isn't just for regulated industries. Whether you're regulated or not, if you're not certifying your workforce in social media compliance, social media is a communications crisis waiting to happen. Now is the time to protect your company and yourself by ensuring employees understand their obligations to comply with your organization's social media policy. And we can help. We have the broadest, deepest library of ready to go, off the shelf social media compliance training courses that you can use to train, assess, and certify your workforce in social media compliance. Our courses are all pre recorded on-demand with assessment questions to ensure knowledge transfer. You even get a record of who's been trained in what. We have courses on social media compliance, social media ethics, social media transparency and disclosure, social media privacy, desktop and mobile security, social media surveillance and more. We even have training on how to use social media effectively for business. If you're not training your people in social media compliance, It's not a question of if, but when a social media meltdown happens on your watch. We have a solution for training, assessing and certifying your workforce in social media compliance, ethics, privacy and security. Social media misuse at work has skyrocketed in the last 12 months. Don't wait for your department to get downsized, your budget to get slashed or your job to be eliminated. Go to complysocially dot com and find out how we can protect your brand against social media misuse for as little as five dollars per employee so Mike, what about
1: third party posts? What about responding questions that may be asked on a social network from a client to prospective client? How do you deal with satisfying finra 's regulatory guidance around public conversations that don't necessarily occur exclusively on your social networking account. Right. Yeah.
2: And so there's a lot about that. It gets interesting for, I guess the third party, right? Because, uh, historically, if you think about it, if you were the third party, you'd call into a financial company to ask some questions. You'd, You'd hear that you're on a recorded line in some cases, uh, message, uh, other times, you're sending a letter in, you know that it's company, that written communication is coming into the company, and, and, and they have to be reviewed, and, and so forth. Uh, in this case, you're broadcasting something, and it, and it generates a conversation. So whether your initial message was somewhat public or semi-public, right, on, if it's in the case of Facebook or LinkedIn, uh, it's out there. The advisor has seen it. He or she decides to respond to it in conversational nature. So the compliance department is going to not only grab the advisory portion of the conversation, but they're going to grab your part of the conversation as well, just that so you posted it on a social network uh, that is public or semi, semi-public, so you kind of have to be aware of that, that you might be getting, you know, your conversation might be monitored in that respect. Um, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. It really depends upon the nature of the conversation and whether it is responsible for the third party's content. If the you ability you to edit or moderate that conversation from the third party, yes, you're responsible for it. You're not responsible for that third party being trying to defraud investors, as an example. The, any attempt will be uh, any any regulatory attempt uh, stop stop that individual or find that individual will be on their uh, their head, right? Uh, but if you let it sit on your site, the Knowing that it was fraudulent or an attempt to defraud investors, as an example, uh, you're not responsible for that content. You, and and, and FINRA may come to you and, and sanction you in some way to say, hey, listen, you should have known better. Like, this is bad for your clients or bad for prospects who land on your page. You've got to take that off. And that will extend to not only your blog but your, or a host of community you have, but it will extend on to Facebook and LinkedIn in the world as well.
1: Okay, hypothetical example. Yep. So uh, someone gets on Twitter and says, uh, you know, uh, the fund of X securities dealer is a terrible product. It's a terrible fund, whatever. Somebody just bashes it. And so a representative from the company responds by saying, no, that's not true. And here's a link to a prospectus with information about the fund. CFO is not a crook. Every, everything's fine here. And, uh, you know, we, we disagree respectfully sure. with your opinion. Okay? Done. Now a month passes by, and the same person comes back and says the same thing. Yeah. Or something a little different. Sure, sure. And this time, the firm does not respond. Now the firm has set a precedent by responding the first time, yep. and now it doesn't respond the second time. Would that be considered non compliant
2: uh, Not necessarily. Uh, it really depends on what happened in the process, right? So one of the, the phrases to get used to when you're dealing with uh, regulations and compliance in the financial services world is uh, facts and circumstances, right? Uh, Finra. SEC, state regulators will always look at the facts and circumstances of the individual situation. So what you just described there may be a classic troll, right, on, on the Internet. So just trying to stir up trouble and poke the bear a little bit and see if they can get you to stir up. Uh, if you've replied once and the person is saying it again, it's essentially the same complaint. Uh, you may have no further obligation, and your compliance team may say, you know, we have no further obligation to, continue to engage publicly with this individual. We've already done that. Now, there is some interesting things you mentioned. What you just brought up, the scenario that you just described is one that uh, I've recently just done some strategic uh, work on, which is dealing with complaints. There's rules, that, that FINRA has rules that says if you receive a written complaint from a prospect or a client, you must address it and it must kind of go through a very specific compliance process for receiving complaints. You actually have to report complaints to FINRA that are specific types of complaints to FINRA. Like, hey, hey let's receive this many complaints this month. They're there. If there's a, a, a kind of a, a complaint that would be a violation that would cause some sort of violation of your of regulatory uh, responsibilities, it actually can go on like a permanent record for other investors to potentially discover in the future that you've got all these, compliance challenges. Um, so it depends upon the nature of the complaint. But m- one of the things that I've noticed is, listen, it, social media is written. If you see it there and it's addressed to you, if it's addressed to your Twitter account or it's on your Facebook page or if it's on LinkedIn, that constitutes a written complaint. And you really need to have a process for how are you going to deal with complaints uh, that are received via you can't just ignore them, right? It doesn't, you know, the, a lot of the companies will tell you, hey, call our 1-800 number or send, it, send us a letter, but the new modern standard for communications is I'm willing to do it on, on digital. So it should be interesting to see how that that, um, that all unfolds. I, I would expect some regulatory guidance from FINRA and SEC on that sometime in the near future.
1: There is some language in the Finner social media guidance about linking to third-party sites, okay. and it implies that if you link to a third-party site, you're kind of endorsing that site. So how is it that all these firms are able to link to their Twitter account or their uh, uh, Facebook account or Facebook page without becoming entangled or without adopting or accepting responsibility for the content on those third-party sites.
2: Sure, sure. And so one of the, you know, the the general rule of thumb of that is as long as you don't modify the the phraseology, so you're you're informing, you know, kind of sharing, like a retweet does not necessarily mean you endorse or entangle uh, or adopt something. Uh, The adoption thing uh, we mentioned is very similar to the adoption and entanglement. They're kind of closely related, a little bit different. Uh, so uh, adoption is very similar to what I I mentioned before on the comments, the third party comments on your site. That if that advisor, uh, received a comment and the comment stays there long enough, uh, you may be effectively adopting, uh, that, that message, right? Uh, by de facto not taking it off, uh, that you know, letting it stay in a place you control it. Entanglement's a little bit different. Entanglement effectively is, can arise from a couple of different situations. One is, you take you see a link to a third party article about uh some sort of financial development with a particular security or, or what have you, and you say, I agree, right? <laughs> um, or uh you write some other colorful language, uh that would give the uh the reader some notion to say that yeah, you get it, that that you're you are part of that message. Another way of entanglement uh arising is if you paid a third party, to produce that content. Uh, So very often, you know, financial firms, uh, just like any other business, will hire uh, a content creator uh, or ask somebody, a a firm, to uh, do a survey or or whatever uh, on a certain subject and then publish the findings. Any of those types of things, effectively, you're entangled. You have now incentivized the user or the creator to create information. Even though you didn't create the information at all, you're part of the stream of that content creation. So you're now entangled in that message. So you, you have a, a compliance and regulatory responsibility for that message to make sure it's not misleading or potentially harmful to the end consumer.
1: Mike, final question. Sure. Um, the, FINRA regulatory gui- the, FINRA, the FINRA guidance for social media um, says that uh, the measures firms should take uh, to ensure that their employees adopt their and, 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 and respect their um, social media policies include what they call appropriate training and education. So what would be considered appropriate? Yeah, so there's two pieces to appropriate
2: training and education that I've seen uh, that are very commonly used and recommended to use by any firm out there. The first and foremost is having a good social media policy, right? So to, to create, craft a social media policy so that everybody knows the rules on the road. Every social media policy is going to be different from firm to firm. They're going to have some of the basic tenets, right? Listen, we're going to archive everything. It's going to be discoverable. Uh, your stuff is going to be supervisable. You know, if you're a financial representative for this firm, your social media accounts should be registered with us. We're using electronic tools to monitor it. All the, you know, the very basics. And then you can get into some specifics on what's allowed and what's not allowed. Uh, and that may vary from firm to firm. So the policy is there. So what education, training and education usually includes is a review of the policy, right? Here's what social media policy is in place. Uh, you acknowledge that you've kind of stepped through it. Click here you agree you've read it type of deal. Very simple. Uh, the next is usually, believe it or not, a 20 to 30-minute uh, training session that says, here's the ins and outs of social media uh, here are the federal regulations, under, uh, kind of an example of uh, a, some do's and don'ts, like, would you say this is an appropriate message or not an appropriate message? What should you do in this given situation type of thing? Very high-level stuff, but just to make sure you cover the basis of, hey, you're sending somebody else for a while to communicate with the public. Do they understand the rules of the road? Are you convinced to a reasonable degree uh, that they're going to be responsible? Uh, It's not usually too heavy-handed. It's not a full day or two days worth of training. It's usually relatively short. um, Because you want it to be acceptable and quick. Something that's long and arduous, you're not going to get advisors using social media for the practice. And frankly, the firms want them using social media now because without it, they're at a strategic disadvantage.
0: And
1: how should these training programs prepare representatives to comply with random spot checks.
2: Um, well, it really depends on the structure of the firm. Uh, as a general, you know, the, the, the first thing they'll have to make sure that they're aware it's going to be it's going to be archived, and here's the process for making sure that everything is archived and um, supervisable by the firm. Right. So, as an example, if you're using a tool like a hearsay or Actian uh, or socialware or, or gainfully or whatever. Uh, here's how you hook up your social media account to this technology, right? So now you know everything you do. We're, we're on the up and up. Technology's got the hard part out of the way. You're not going to have to manually think about how we're going to archive things and how it's going to be reviewed by compliance. Uh, so that's the one part. And then, like I said, the, the second part is really teaching people what they're allowed to say, uh, at a high level, you can't cover every, every you know, single situation. It's more like training somebody to put their thinking cap on before they tweet, before they tell someone, like, how do you approach this? What, how does this match up with your responsibilities as a registered professional?
1: Mike Langford, CEO and founder of FinServe Marketing. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Eric. I appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, Record, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.